0: Hello World Game Changers wherever you are today in the world and it is my pleasure, my immense pleasure to welcome back my namesake Peter Lowe and Peter on a previous episode you may recall we spoke quite a little bit about football philosophy and life philosophy. We kind of want to continue that today listeners by diving into Pete's book The Language of Winning. So Pete without further ado a very very warm welcome to you sir. And um,
1: a warm thank you back as well, Paul. Um, great to be back again. Between the last uh, the last time we spoke and this one now, the worrying thing is i found my hair's going grey, Paul.
0: <laughs> well, everything's relative and proportional in life. You just exactly. want to be very grateful, Pete. You've got some here in the first yeah, place. Yeah. Because <laughs> some of us are not that blessed. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, Paul, but I just thought I'd mention it anyway. <laughs> yeah, anyway. <laughs> so, Pete, the book, The Language yes. of Winning, might be useful just to give us an overview of, um, you know, the chapters in there, the philosophy of the book, the aim of the book. You know, why did you write it? That's
1: a great question, Matt. I mean, I, I, the truth is, Paul, I've always had a hankering to write a book, okay? That's the first thing. Now I know a lot of people will say that. And the truth is, the second bit is, I didn't know how to write a book. I had no idea. Um, I'm reasonably educated uh, to master's degree level, but that was all a long time ago, by the way. Um, But the truth is, I didn't know how to write a book. And then some, which is officially two years, just over two years ago now, I did a a presentation as a speaker to a business conference in Manchester and um, before, literally five minutes before going out on stage one of the organisers came to me and said, Pete, what do we call your presentation? And to be quite honest with you, Paul, I'm never one to bother about things like that but they needed a title and I had a colleague with me who's a very good friend of mine and she said, well you know what, I think this this is all about what you call the language of winning, Pete. And it's a title, that's something that her and I I, have spoken about on many occasions, actually. And they gave it the title, The Language of Winning. And before I went out there, I had to really think quickly on my feet about how I would present this as an introduction because I didn't have an introduction for the language of winning, Paul. Mm. And that's generally true. But at the end of the presentation, I got inundated with many people came up and said, what a clever title, and we'd never thought about stuff like this, et cetera, et cetera. One lady said, I do hope you're going to make uh, put this into a book. That was it. That's how, that's how it was created. Um, and that's genuinely true. Um, there is The book itself at that stage, prior to that um, conference starting, was literally just an idea in my mind. I didn't know it was going to be called The Language of Winning. But post-conference, of course, I get home... And the thing is just flying around in my head. And if you're like me and somebody says something that's a bit of a trigger, the trigger stays with you, doesn't it? You can't put it And this damn trigger stayed with me all night. And so I ended up framing out what I believe were gonna be the chapters in the language of winning. And that's exactly how they've come about. And so it represents what I call a career of metaphors. In other words, the result of a career spent in the world of professional football, and simply a whole series of metaphors that helped me understand so many aspects of leadership and of of creating a high-performance culture and, more importantly, Paul, of maintaining that high-performance culture. And I was lucky enough to work in one for a long time. Mm. And, and, And really, it's a whole series of metaphors that have become catalysts that I think Anybody reading it will go, oh, I get that. I understand that. And I'm the first to admit, by the way, it is very different. It's very different. And I genuinely think that.
0: The uh, What's interesting about that, listeners, is, as you know, the World Game Changes podcast in a former life was actually <coughs> called Mastering the Game of Life. And from my own point of view, I spent decades, you know, from, from a very early age, as you know, um, the my influence in life was that one day I would wear my hope, my belief, everything, my whole life was that one day I would wear with pride the red shirt of Nottingham Forest Football Club and set that intention. Now that didn't quite come off for a number of reasons, but it's interesting about how we set intentions, listeners, because many moons later I I ended up in the prestigious academy at Nottingham Forest. I was still representing the club, albeit not as a player. But the point I'm trying to make, building on what Pete said there, is that this, this, this language, I mean, obviously in Pete's case, the language of winning, but for me, the language, mastering the game of life was really, from my that philosophy, was built on my approach to trying to master the game of football because there are very, very, very strong parallels in that, which people that are involved in football will probably grasp. But even if you're not involved in football or don't even like football, that becomes irrelevant, really, because of the power of metaphors. So on that note, Pete, just give us an overview. Did you say nine chapters in the book?
1: Yeah, there's nine chapters in the book, Paul, and um, they're not long chapters, not by any means. And this, by the way, is not a book that what I call um, a strong academic book. It's been written from a perspective of experiences, and those experiences are represented in this book as a series of examples that highlight the points I'm trying to make, if that mm. makes any sense to you. Because the people who asked me to write the book asked me, would I write it in the way in which I speak? So the first thing I would say before I talk about the cultures is, the language of winning is not, off, it's not really about what you say. It's more about what you don't say and how you don't say it. Mm. Now, you might think that's a strange thing to say. Well, no, it's not. If you're a leader of an environment, you can't always be around and be available and have your fingers on everything and this, that and the other. You must be prepared to build a team of leaders that are prepared to take the mantle on board and run with the responsibility of work. And that's what it's about. And so the nine the nine chapters were things that I'd already spoken about in separate conferences, believe it or not. And that in itself is not a coincidence. That reflects my mindset, Paul, where it was. So the first chapter is culture makes or breaks. Because it does. It makes or breaks. You either have a good culture or you don't. And if you don't, you will always play catch-up because things are always going wrong. In a high-performance environment, you can't afford to play catch-up because your competitors are equally high-performance they start to walk past you. By the time you're starting to walk at their pace, they're now sprinting. And as they say in America, Houston, we have a problem. Chapter two is what I call creating lines of success. In other words, it's looking for those little bits, those little frameworks of things that you can tag onto, grab onto, hold onto, create, plug them out of the sky. Where's the cloud that holds all the stuff? and pull it down there and start to build on these little things. It's all built around your people. So in other words, building teams of people who are not frightened of exploiting other team members' success, building teams of people who are not frightened of exploiting their own success, because people often talk about um, the fear of failure, Paul. But you know what? The fear of success is every bit as big a fear as the fear of failure. Because to succeed, you've got to hurt yourself mentally continually. You've got to get out of your comfort zone and challenge yourself just that little bit more every single day. And that is hard work. The third chapter is what I, I think is really significant and it's influencing mindsets. How does leadership continually go about influencing mindsets, including their own, by the way? So ensuring that their own is not the mindset, that is the blockage to success within the environment they're trying to build, and ensuring that their mindset is not the mindset that creates a blame culture, because a blame culture is very easy to put in place when something goes wrong. Um, Chapter four is you are the leader, and there we look at what I think are very basic leadership skills. And by the way, I'm not talking about things that you often see in books, Paul, like things like empathy and respect and trust and all this, that and the other. If I'm honest with you, I'll turn around to you and say, if you haven't got those things as a leader, then you should get up, give up your work, go find another job because you should have them. They're basic prerequisites for me for any top leader. So there, there are other things in, in there that are, that are significant. Uh, you know, like leaders create leaders, for example. Developing a plan and a way forward, the authentic you and no alibis. Uh, You know, these are just chapter headings. Um, The fifth chapter is what I call the dangers of the emotional tree. And and let me explain that, if that's okay. On the training ground, I would always say to the players, uh, stay away from the emotional tree. And what I meant by that was that when their emotions were so supercharged and beginning to be out of control, they were climbing this metaphorical tree, if you like, the thing is about being at the top of a tree, pole, you should be able to see everywhere. But because your emotions cloud the decisions that you're able to make, you can't see anything. And so what we didn't want them to do was climb the emotional tree. So that's about teaching people how to stay away from that, that zone area, that danger zone area, but also about how to manage it when, and if they do get there. It's, Chapter six is what I call the cycle of change. In other words, all businesses go through the cycle of change. Um, I think it's a highly interesting chapter. And I think that if I'm honest with you, when readers read that one, I think they'll be very interested in it. Because it's something that you can apply not only to your personal life, but to any business environment on this planet. Big, small, medium, whatever it might be. And then the last three chapters really get nutty and gritty and really get at you. And the, the, seven, the seventh one is the power of what I call it, the power of the changing room, understanding your team. Now, you worked—you were a young player at a football club, Paul, and you've mentioned him to me several times, the, 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 late, the very great Brian Clough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you talked about the influence of this man. I worked with a press manager who was a player with, um, with Mr. Clough, and he mentioned certain things to me. And great managers know their players. And I'm talking about not just managers in football. They know their people. Now, that's a football analogy I'm using there for business, the power of the changing room, the power of the meeting room, the power of the boardroom, the power of the shop floor, whichever way you want to put it. It's mixed by an absolute multiplicity of mindsets, all of which have to interrelate, some of which have got nothing in common with each other. So how do you make the individual sum of the parts – Become the whole. In other words, the sum of the parts working together is far stronger than any number of separate parts working on their own. That's what teamship's about, isn't it? So, understanding your team is a vital aspect. And then, chapter eight is managing obstacles to success. I've listed certain ones in this book, but honestly, I can double that. And I'm sure that you guys can as well. And then, when you go into how you manage these obstacles to success to ensure that actually the mindset changes towards them, Paul. So they're no longer obstacles. They're just challenges. So we have to see them as a challenge and not an obstacle. So in a football sense, the center half marking the center forward and the center forward's giving him a bit of a nightmare for 15 minutes. He has to come to terms with what the center forward strengths are and be able to rationalize that very quickly because if he can't, the game is gone. And you know that yourself. Mm. And that's in a business sense as well. And chapter nine is the last one, significantly important. This process of evolution, I call it move to improve. It's a bit catchy. I know that. But I I like catchy titles. And the reason being is because I don't forget them. And I've got a forgetting memory, shall we say. So this move to improve is about how we continually wish to improve and grow. And look for marginal gains or constant improvement, whichever way you want to look at that. Okay, and each chapter is headed by or starts with a um, quotation from a famous person in life, which I think suits
0: the chapter. If I'm honest, really quite well. That's the book, Paul. Mm, Super fascinating. Wow. I, I mean, what's come through, listeners, already on this? We're going to create a mini series out of this because there's so much rich, deep material there. And and I'll stress the point again. Whether you like football or not is totally irrelevant, because what I understand about Pete's work here, and and obviously I've got the benefit of having spoken to him um, off air, so to speak, um, these philosophies, this approach to life, is equal, if not more powerful in life than it is in football. It really is. And that is, you know... That makes it. That makes it very, very. What's the word I'm looking for? I was going to say. Uh, yeah. What's the word? Versatile. It serves us all. It means something to us all, and uh, you know, as I say, whether we like football or not, totally irrelevant. So, I think what I'd like to do, Pete. Um, I mean, you know, to quote Julie Andrews, let's start at the very beginning. Absolutely. And have a little bit of a, a mini deep dive into. Culture makes or breaks, because that's something that organizations and we've got an individual culture for ourselves. And I'm not so sure, you know, and I speak about my long years in darkness, um, that we fully understand ourselves. And if we don't fully understand ourselves, how on earth can we hope to to understand anyone else, irrespective of whether we're a leader or not? So I think it's a, it's a very good starting point. Any thoughts about what I've just said there around this, you know, get, you know to thine own self be true. Get to know yourself first. I don't think there's any question about that. And, you know,
1: I, I completely concur with that. I endorse it strongly. And the reason why I do that is this, is that a culture is created for a business by a leading person in the business. It can't just be created by, by the masses. The mass, excuse me, calling it the masses. The masses can have a say in it, but ultimately the direction of a business must come from a leading person, the leading person. So if if I just quote the very great Bill Walsh, ex of San Francisco 49ers, who sadly passed away in the late 90s, but whose whose work is still revered even today, certainly through the writings of people like Steve Jameson, who who actually said to me uh, in um, in an email that he's, he's singularly the only genius he's ever met. And in his book, which is called um, The Score Takes Care of Itself, he talks about this, and I'll give you the quotation. The culture precedes positive results. It doesn't get tacked on as an afterthought on your way to the victory stand. In other words, you set your parameters by your culture. And he talks about creating a standard of performance. In other words, it's the leader's standard of performance that he or she wants everybody within the environment to work towards. And that standard of performance must be clearly understood by everybody. And so that person creates a number of points that go in it. So for example, it's things like generating a learning environment, a true learning environment, not one which is only in place when everything is going well, Paul but especially when things aren't going well. So everybody who's in senior positions, they down track to everybody else, their knowledge, their skills, their abilities to do things. So people under them can learn their knowledge, their skills, their abilities to do things. And they pass it down and they pass it down and so on. You know, and you bring to work every day, the best of attitudes to create the very highest of actions in your work. So that I think we would, Absolutely agree. Now with what I'm about to say, that it's not everybody that does that. Mm. Some people yeah. just see work as a means to an end, and as a consequence, they comfort zone in their work. And a standard of performance is designed so that that doesn't happen, Paul. If that makes any sense. Of course it does. Yeah. And so this culture makes or breaks. I think it's um, a strong title because it does. You've either got a great culture and people can evolve within it, and therefore the business evolves within it. If your people flourish and your people evolve, and they flower, and they can be who they wanna be, and they can give suggestions, and they can come up with different ideas, and they can say, I think we found a different way of doing something slightly differently, and notice I didn't say better, because you might be doing it quite well anyway, and the implication by saying doing it better is that we're not doing it very well anyway. I'm a mindset guy. And I think you can see that's coming across. I believe in in the power of the mindset because our thoughts create our actions.
0: And I've tried to put that down in this chapter. Thoughts create our actions. Was it Gandhi, the originator, Pete, when he said our beliefs influence our thoughts, our thoughts, beliefs, let me get this right, beliefs, thoughts influence our words, our words influence our actions and our actions influence our results. All starts with belief, uh, belief really, then, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, and that's why I say, you know, this standard of performance has to be directed, whether we like that or not, by, if you like, the leading cheese in an organisation. You know, it has to be put in place. And it can't be represented by values that are contrary to what the culture wants it to be. And those values, by the way, they can't be made up on a daily basis. They have to be values by which the organization lives by. Mm-hmm. And if I remember, Riley, right, it was the guy that owns the, uh, the uh, set up the uh, coffee business, what's it called? Well, the two main coffee things, Paul. I'm re- Star- I'm really- Starbucks. Starbucks, you got it. And it was the, uh, the chief executive of the Starbucks said, is that the one thing that everybody has in common is the fact that they own the values of the business and they must live those values on a daily basis. And and with respect, Starbucks is pretty successful, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, you know, values are so important. You know, they're absolutely critical. And if if I go back to the early nineties of when it, however uh, was, when the you know Enron and the Enron crisis came up in the states and the Enron business crashed, which was a multi billion pound organisation or multi billion dollar organisation, and people lost their pensions and goodness knows what and their retirement money all over the shop, you know. Their values were chipped into the into the marble holes in the in the hallways when you walked in. Well, if I remember rightly, their chief executive officer served a number of years in prison, you know, because what they found going on there was corporate um, well, crime, basically. Their values just didn't match what their values they said they were. So you've got to live your values and it has to be part of your culture. It's a no. What I call your value, uh, your culture, Paul. I believe it's your organisational DNA. Yeah. I worked in, yeah. a, in a, a business for ten years at Manchester City, and we produced players left, right, and centre, all over the shop. Thirty-nine Premier League players, seventy-four professional debutants in the first team in a ten-year spell, and those debutants had to—they had to be debuts in what we, we we termed as being competitive games. In other words, League Cup, FA Cup. Uh, championship as it was of the old first division at the time and then the Premier League as we became, so it had to be one of those four facets and um, we we created players left, right and centre but our culture was just driven by a man, um, an academy manager who believed that actually the only way you could do it was to have a team of leaders who would pass their skills to their team of leaders and so on And it generates, um, how may I put, a loyalty to the business. So in a 10-year spell poll, we only lost two members of staff. And one of those was to an internal appointment. And the second one was he left football to go and set his own business up. But we did gain other members of staff. So we went from six to 33 in a 10-year spell and only lost two.
0: Now, that's reflective of people being happy in their work environment. It reminds me of the culture under the Shankly, what Shankly put in place yeah. with the bootless mentality. So that Liverpool knew who the manager would be, not only the next manager, but the one after that.
1: They've yes. got
0: this whole kind of culture, this thread of we do what we've got a DNA. As you, I love that terminology. We've got a DNA, we've got a culture, a way of doing things. And whether it's me here today doing it or my successor tomorrow or his success of the week after, month after, year after, decade after, doesn't matter. That DNA is is embedded within the club, those values, that vision. Where are we actually going with this? That's key mm-hmm. as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Because if, if you
1: have leadership that strives to develop other leaders, what you end up with, Paul, is visionary thinking and compassionate leadership. And that seeks to find those who proffer opinions because their opinions contain ideas and, very importantly, intuitive thinking. And that's thinking that creates impact. And leadership has to create impact. And there is the belief in some organisations that the guy that works on the shop floor doesn't have to be a leader. Well, let me give you this metaphorical perspective, if you like, is that... The guy on the shop floor who one day gets faced with quite a big responsibility, in other words, completing a task, is all of a sudden faced with with becoming a leader for himself. So he does have to become a leader, Paul. Mm -hmm. Even though it's at a much lower level, if you like, than somebody else further up the food chain, it is much, much better for any organisation when the people who all make the team up And using the words of one of my past managers who said to me very early in my career, make sure that you work in a way with the young players that they can think for themselves and solve their own problems. Because it's much easier for me when they become first-seen players and I don't have to keep telling them what to do. And and that I actually find quite profound, if I'm honest with you. So this thing about, you know... Creating intuitive thinking and the ability to want to lead yourself and lead others, of small groups or whatever, when times are tough is very, very important. And my last piece on, on, on this little bit is in our academy, when I actually worked there at City, there was literally only one thing on the wall for 10 years, literally one thing. And these days in all work environments, they emblazon the walls, Paul with fantastic quotes and this, that and the other. And by the way, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. But here's the problem with that. After two or three weeks, people stop to notice it. It becomes wallpaper. People walk past it. Mindsets look at it, but they never really take notice of it anymore. And if you ask them as they walk past something, what's, on, on, what's the quotation on that, on that poster behind you? They would probably wouldn't be able to tell you because they just walk past something they know is there, but don't really take any notice of it. So if, you, if you're if you going to have an environment like that, fantastic. But you need to have a budget to keep changing the things. Mm. The mindsets are freshened all the time with what they see. So we had one thing, and it was literally outside the meeting room where all the departmental meetings took place. And when you think about it, that's clever. That's our Anfield, the boot room. Mm. So if you recall... and it's still there now when the Liverpool sides go out to take the field there is a sign above the steps going down onto the pitch which says this is Anfield and the players touch it as they walk out and for the the opposition players it's this is we know where we are guys now we're in for it today we've got to work hard today to get a result because this is Anfield and it has a history if that makes any sense of course it does. The only thing that was outside our office door was this, and it was a sign, and it said this, We're all think alike, nothing ever changes. So when you walk into that office and you take part in a meeting, don't just sit there. Because if you're thinking like everybody else, we will not create intuitive thinking.
0: That's why we were different. This is where I've got it from. Mm, fascinating. Well, Listeners, I hope you agree that you know, as the first of a mini series, and you know, probably a, a, a five a five part mini series where we can maybe do a couple of chapters each episode. You know, just throw one or two ideas around, but hopefully, hopefully, you agree. I mean, I've certainly been fascinated. I love this stuff, particularly when it's related to football, because mm-hmm. you know, yeah, again, listeners, no apologies for repeating the game of life and the game of football. They go hand in glove. They go hand in glove at the risk of splitting metaphors there. So, uh, Pete, I want to thank you immensely. As I say, that wasn't kind of host rhetoric when I said I really enjoyed that because I really did enjoy it. So um, I want to ask you one big question to sign off. Sure. But uh, before I do that, I just want to invite you in for you to share your contact details, and how people can reach out to you, find out more about you.
1: Well, first and foremost, my, my email address is Pete at petelow.com And low is spelled as in yours, Paul, L-O-W-E. Okay. Um, people can find out about my program called The Language of Winning at www.PeteLowe.com. And that takes them into a nine-video program, Paul, I've created, which is off the book. So that will take them into that. And in that, they will notice if that they go into purchasing stuff like that's on there, there is a free copy of the book and an audio copy and a workbook. All that stuff goes with that. I, I can be emailed also at um, uh, Pete at first-team.net. So I've got two email addresses. Um, my Twitter handle is at yourfirstteam. Okay. And yours is capital Y, first is capital F, T is capital T. And my telephone number, which I'm very happy to give, is 07531-538-302. And of course, people can get me on LinkedIn, and I'm under Pete Lowe. So my answer to that, if you're looking for me on on LinkedIn, look for
0: the good-looking one. By the way, I'm joking. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> that, that northern human never sees this and he's, he's got to come outside
1: a fish and chips, ball or a bit of cheek
0: and a line of cheek if i'm honest with you yeah, absolutely <laughs> so the big question then the, or should i say the, the final question yeah certainly of this episode anyway this particular episode so we've spoke around culture here beaten the importance of and obviously singled out values quite rightly But other than values, so you're going into an organization for the first time or maybe delivering uh, a conversation uh, speech to the senior management team. Other, you know, taking values out of that, you're not allowed to use the word vision or values. You know, the top two words, if you like, vision and values. So you're gagged on those. Now you're you're censored. You can't use those words. What would be your message, Pete, in terms of going into a new organization and saying, right, we need to devise a, you know, an, a really empowering culture. Just give us a couple of pointers, Pete, on alternative words or directions to head around culture for me.
1: That's a great, uh, that's a great thing to actually ask me to put in place there. And I'll, I'll say this, there is no I and we, and only we mindsets, mindsets create successful teams, Paul. Nobody is ever bigger than the team. So this is about generating a whole bunch of people, no matter who they are, no matter what their personal likes or dislikes are for each other, who all work together to make the complete sum of the parts. That's the first thing. So it's all about team. Culture is what I call the heartbeat of the organization. And it's your foundation for success. It's the bricks you put in the wall, um, that become that success. It's not glossy messages on wallpapers that decorates the wall. because it, if it is glossy messages, then I've got to tell you, Paul, you're using the wrong wallpaper and definitely the wrong messages. It's not a nice to have. It creates believers and believers are influencers and influencers become the changes of mindsets. I think that is absolutely mega big genuinely and the last bit I'll say to you is this for it and I'd say this to anybody that I was speaking to dream really 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 big but spending time daydreaming will create too many conversations with what I call the f word failure and in every failure exists your next success if you if you're brave enough to explore why it's happened and what and the remains it leaves you with but Having to meet the F word because all you do is dream is probably the reason for your failure in the first place. And so the message there to any team of leaders or chief exec or whatever that I would be speaking to is, have we got mindsets that generate intuition intuitive thinking on a daily basis? And if we haven't, why haven't we?
0: Very powerful. I'm going to leave it there, listeners. Cogitate on those... Uh, those deep, profound words of wisdom, if you will. And all that remains now is we'd sign off by saying, remember, the world's changing. How will you respond? Thanks very much for listening to this World Game Changers podcast episode. Hopefully you found it interesting and helpful. Drop a line to paul at worldgamechangers.org with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Remember, the world is changing. How will you respond?